Across the globe, people's social lives have been shaken up by COVID-19, to put it lightly. Forced to live closer together or further apart than ever before, life in lockdown casts a strange new light on the importance of our loved ones. As loneliness, cabin fever, and drastic changes in lifestyle tear into our everyday lives, our closest relationships continue to bear the brunt of the pandemic's impact. Fortunately, through decades of scientific studies, researchers are starting to forge a science-based path to a happy and healthy relationship. We've discovered what dating app algorithms get wrong, and how taking on dogs' social skills ultimately led to humans' evolutionary survival. Really, whether it be through ancient paleontology or modern psychology, science continues to provide the best relationship advice. Welcome to the Abstract Podcast from Inverse. I'm Tanya Bustos, your host. Our first story is about a landmark study that finds there's something far more important than your personality when it comes to forming happy unions. 20 years of relationship science reveals the strongest bonds hinge on the nature of the relationship itself. Our second story is about how mastering relationships led to our success as a species. Driven by natural selection, humans evolved to be friendly, changing the course of history and remaining key to our long-term survival. This is The Abstract, a look at the latest scientific discoveries and technology innovations from the reporters at Inverse. In each episode, we explore a single theme through two different stories. Up now, how the latest dating study predicts the secret to a happy relationship. Today, we are talking about the secret that happy couples know. Today, we're going to be talking about some things that we do to keep the fire alive. We're going to learn about 12 signs of a healthy relationship. 10 signs you're married to the wrong person. Five best websites. How to recognize a toxic relationship. How to be great in a relationship. How to be in a happy relationship. How to keep a girl happy. People have asked us, what is the secret to a happy relationship? If you want to learn how to be in a happy relationship, Maybe you should look to people who are in one. There are no lack of opinions, masterclasses, tutorials, videos, podcasts on how to cultivate a happy relationship. First, you need to find that relationship. And if you've ever stressed over how to convey your personality through a dating app bio or even judge someone else's through theirs, research on romance suggests you may be wasting some time there. According to analysis of 11,196 couples, the most powerful predictors of a relationship quality are the characteristics of the relationship itself. Not just you, but the life dynamic you build with your person. Published July 2020 in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, the study broke down all the individual ingredients that go into romantic relationships to find out what makes a union the most successful. The study ultimately found the dynamic that you build within that relationship, the shared norms, the in-jokes, the shared experiences, proved to be the most important factor in the end. Here to break down what all this means for you and your relationship is Inverse's Emma Batwell. Hey, Emma, how's it going? Hey, Tanya. I'm good. How are you? Good. So it was interesting to learn how little um, individualism and personality pan out here. So let's talk about um, that first. What are the individual variables that go into this equation? What are the things that individually we bring to the table that affects a relationship? Yeah, I mean, sort of spoiler alert, I wouldn't focus too much on them because ultimately these are not really the things that matter when we look at predicting satisfaction and happiness um, in relationships. And this was done over, you know, um, 11,196 couples from 43 studies, but I'll give them to you anyway. 
They are uh, life satisfaction, so that's basically how happy you are with your life. Negative affect, so that's like feeling distressed or irritable, uh, depression or feelings of hopelessness, um, attachment anxiety, so that's something like I worry a lot about my relationships, that kind of sentiment, and attachment avoidance, which is preferring not to become too attached. So these are the kind of things that matter as like a lens through which you see your relationship, but like I said earlier, that's not really what's going to sort of predict happiness in your relationship, even though they do feel like they really might. I mean, it feels like that's everyone, and yet it doesn't even matter. So moving on to what does matter, it's obviously what goes into the relationship, you know, comparing those individual qualities to um, what you nurture and what comes into fruition through that nurturing of the relationship. So what does that mean? What variables go into that in terms of satisfying that relationship? Yeah, so I think like the top line from this study is that I mean, really, it's about the relationship you build with another person. And I think that kind of feels counterintuitive because you might think that like, okay, I need to find somebody who is like a perfect personality match for me. And you'd really focus on the personality of your partner when you are going through like hinge profiles or whatever. But within that sort of importance being the relationship you build, being sort of the central factor, there are sort of these five variables that hold a lot of sway there. And one of them is sort of your perceived partner commitment. So that's basically in a phrase, like my partner wants this relationship to last forever. Appreciation, so feeling like lucky to be with the person you're with. Uh, Sexual satisfaction, perceived partner satisfaction. So that's how happy you think that your relationship makes your partner feel. And then how you deal with conflict in the relationship. Interesting. So what made it so evident that this relationship building aspect was way more important? Yeah. So basically what happened is that these scientists were really looking for some definitive answers from about two decades worth of relationship and science. So they went to 43 different studies and these studies had interviewed a total between all of them of you know over 11,000 couples twice, um, usually at the beginning sort of stages of the relationship and then at a different uh, time point between like months and years later. And what they were looking for were sort of these variables that seemed to predict how um, successful or happy the couples were in the relationship. And that's sort of how they focused in on these two sort of buckets of variables. So you had these individual variables, which were like, you know, those life satisfaction, um, attachment, anxiety kinds of things that are sort of based off of your personality or your partner's personality. And then there were these sort of relationship-based variables. So that's stuff like how you deal with conflict or how, per, you know, committed you perceive your partner to be. And the overarching theme is that the relationship-based variables actually were way better predictors of relationship success than individual variables. So I think like the actual numbers were that you know, actor-reported traits, or that's your own personality, can only account for 19% of differences in how happy you find your relationship. But as many as 45% of the differences in relationship satisfaction could be explained by those relationship-related characteristics. And your partner's personality only seemed to account for 5% of that relationship satisfaction. So do we take from this that maybe it's not wise to search for that perfect person, you know, just build that relationship seems to be the answer. So I actually asked the scientist what her advice was for people who were either in relationships or, or were single. And basically she said really her advice for everyone was the same, which is it is less about finding like what you perceive to be that perfect person. And it's more about sort of building that relationship itself. I don't think that that means that you shouldn't, you know, go out and and date different people and all that stuff. But I think that it's sort of a different, like a shift in focus in what's actually important for the long-term happiness of the relationship. So they're not totally independent of one another, but that sort of seems to be the takeaway. 
Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. Interesting stuff. Emma, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Tanya. Eighty thousand years ago, a process began that would change the course of history. Humans chose to become friendly. Up next, why friendliness is what has made us so successful as a species and why it remains key for our relationships in present day. Relative to other extinct human species, we are more dog-like in that we've gone through the same process where natural selection favored individuals that were friendlier, especially to strangers that we recognized as being in our group. That's completely unique to our species. That was Brian Hare, professor at Duke University and co-author of the book Survival of the Friendliest, which says that up until 50,000 years ago, there were at least four other human species that were running around on planet Earth with us. Somewhere along the way, something happened that would change everything. Homo sapiens chose to become friendly, and the rest, as they say, is history. Friendliness then became a cultural revolution, one that built the foundation of human society. It's what made us so successful as a species and remains the key to our long-term survival. Underlying this is one common trait that we share with bonobos as well as dogs. We're all self-domesticated. And, driven by natural selection, we made a choice and evolved to become better at reading the intentions of others. This choice became the biggest self-domesticated event in the history of life. Here's Brian Hare again with more. We are built for friendliness. We, all of us, carry in our brains a neurobiological network that allows us to learn from each other, communicate with each other, cooperate with each other in ways that are beyond what even the most advanced animal can do. And it explains why we can rapidly innovate and improve technology and why we're able to survive and figure out ways to govern ourselves, solve problems that otherwise might seem intractable. Ultimately, The secret to our own success and the reason we're still here all comes down to our ability to be friendly. Here to flesh this out with us a little bit more is Mind and Body Editor at Inverse, Sarah Sloat. Hey, Sarah. Hey, how's it going? Good. So as hard as this is to believe sometimes, what I got from this story is that human beings are essentially hardwired to be friendly. Is that what it really comes down to? Yes. Uh, You could say that Homo sapiens evolved to be a big part of this area of research is that Homo sapiens, you know, we of just a handful of different humans that have ever existed. We are the the friendliest humans who have ever lived on Earth, as strange as that might sound in comparison to like the day to day. But it comes back to this idea called self-domestication. Um, it's this idea that we went through a selection for friendliness and This explains how we were able to outcompete and survive long after other human species. You know, we went through a process where natural selection favored individuals who were friendlier and more tolerant. So on an evolutionary level, we see how friendliness became such an important tool for survival. It's the case that Brian Hare makes, who we just heard from, who wrote the book Survival of the Friendliest. You spoke to him as well. He says that We're here today because we learned to be friendly. Is it fair to say that we wouldn't be here if not for that one attribute? Yes. So the thesis of this book is that friendliness is a winning strategy in life. And it informs this neurological network that allows us to learn from each other, communicate with each other, 
cooperate with each other in ways that are beyond what other advanced animals can do. As scientist Brian Hare told me, the argument is that friendliness can explain why we could rapidly innovate and, and we could also solve problems that might otherwise seem unsolvable. And it really comes down to this idea that friendly people are able to survive because of that collaborative sense of relationships. But it's more than just friendliness, right? We we also went through self-domestication along the way. How do those go hand in hand and how does that come in and help mold what humans eventually became? Yes. So you can have species be friendly as a result of some change to their psychology or physiology. It makes them more tolerant and nicer to each other. That can happen without self-domestication actually happening. Human self-domestication is a hypothesis that states that among the many driving forces of human evolution, humans selected their companions depending on who was more pro-social, you know, who exhibited pro-social behavior. And self-domestication is this friendliness that actually affects development. It changed developmental pathways, meaning that there is a large impact not just on behavior, but on morphology and physiology as well. Something I think is really cool is that scientists like Brian Hare argue that bonobos and dogs are also self-domesticated and other animals have the potential to go through the same process, although it, it plays out a bit differently in humans because of our cognitive power. What also seems to be the case is that it's a tool that we need to nurture. It's not something that just is. We need to work at it because if we don't, you know, we've certainly seen things go in the other direction. Yes. So it's a mechanism that allows us to do many amazing things, but it also comes with what um, Brian describes as an off switch. You know, we're built in a way that if we feel that our group identity is threatened, we can start to see the people who are threatening our group as not fully human. And we may not be aware that this is going on, but the the network that is responsible for the benefits of friendliness, it dampens and it doesn't apply to those that we feel are the ones who are threatening our group. And I mean, it, it sets up a situation for some pretty horrific behavior um, because we feel like our sense of morality doesn't have to apply to beings that we consciously or subconsciously don't see as human. So yeah, so what allows us to be tolerant and friendly is also what allows us to be to be cruel. So is the thinking here that this evolution can further continue? You know, now that we understand the mechanism, can we keep using this tool? Or how can our unique grasp of this tool help us as we continue to evolve? Or can it even do that, I guess, is the question. That's the hope. You know, the, the big question is, how can we immunize ourselves against having that switch get flipped? And, you know, in some ways, it, it could be recognizing our common humanity with others, you know, even if you feel threatened or even if you feel confused, it's another human being. And in turn, you are in the part of the same group as that human. In turn, you know, studies show, and I, and I find this so fascinating and, and scary at the same time, but people who see themselves farther away from animals not being part of the animal kingdom are more likely to dehumanize groups of people like immigrants. But if people who do see themselves as just part of the animal world are less likely to do that. And so I think another 
perhaps another pathway towards reclaiming our friendliness is realizing that we are just one small part of a a much larger natural network. And um, it's on us to take care of each other. You can read more about survival of the friendliest at inverse.com, where you can also find Sarah's full interview with author Brian Hare. Thanks for the time, Sarah. Thank you. Head to inverse.com to read more about the latest science on all things relationships. You can click on the link in the show notes for all stories we talked about today. If you agree that science and facts matter more than ever, give us a rating and review on iTunes to help more people find The Abstract and other podcasts like it. New episodes of The Abstract are released three times a week. Find old episodes and more original reporting on science, innovation, culture, and entertainment at inverse.com. Look for The Abstract Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast app you use. For Inverse, I'm Tanya Bustos. Thanks for listening.